Good afternoon from the West Coast of the United States of America. It is 1 p.m. here on the West Coast, and this is our 38th podcast episode. It is April the 27th as we are recording this. Uh, we have a treat for you guys today. I'm excited for this. Uh, we've been in conversation with our guest for, um, I would say, a couple of months uh, to have him on, and I don't want to take any more time away. So I'm just going to go into an introduction and uh, bring him on. So Dr. David De Silva, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure, Arthur. Thank you for having me. Uh, I want to jump into just kind of your accolades, your, your background, uh, education-wise, ask you some practical questions, and then we'll get into our subject. You have a BA in um uh, from princeton in english um and may maybe that has helped you in the amount of books you have written i think over the, over the years uh and then you have an mdiv from princeton as well uh in uh so princeton theological seminary and then a phd in religion and new testament from emory university um you wrote your dissertation on despising shame the social function of the rhetoric of honor and dishonor in the Epistle to the Hebrews, which is my favorite book in the Bible, by the way. So, it used to be mine too before a dissertation and a commentary. <laughs> so, <laughs> what you're what you're saying is I probably shouldn't uh, work in that area. It is it's complicated. I'm kidding, of course. Kidding, of course. Yeah. So I was introduced to you in the mid two thousands. Uh, introduced to you in writing, I should say, in the uh, mid two thousands. And um, in Bible college, when I had the honor of reading this book, okay. Uh, now I think the title to this, there's an updated version to this. That uh, not the title. Well, the title the, hasn't the, changed. The, the 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 cover has changed, not the title. Yeah. The contents have considerably. It's it's uh -huh. a real update, but yeah, yeah, it just came out in 2021. So um, I, I remember uh, I would always be confused about uh, when Jesus would tell people in the, in the New Testament, Jesus would heal people and then tell them, don't tell anyone. And then the people would completely disobey him. And I was a fairly new Christian, I should say. And I'd be like, why are people disobeying Jesus? It just makes no sense to me. Um, and, and then I read this book and I was like, ah, they're not disobeying him. It has a lot to do with honor and their responsibility within culture. Um, and uh, just... Understanding the cultural expectations uh, that were there helped me quite a bit in, in the way I looked at the New Testament and, and even our responsibility, like what evangelism looks like in, um, in spreading the, uh, the fame of his name. Yeah. Uh, so uh, now we're not going to be talking about this today. Uh, we were talking about the Apocrypha, which is uh, maybe a lot more complicated of a conversation. I'm not sure you've done the studies, but tell us some practical advice that you've learned, just uh, things you've seen. You've been in academia for a while. You've written quite a bit of books, lots of articles. Uh, through your educational career or even in academia, some people might be interested in pursuing that. Some people are in the middle of that. What, mm. what are some practical life advice you can give? Um, I, I suppose the first thing that comes to mind, although I doubt I really need to tell your listeners this, um, stay close to God, stay close to a local congregation. Uh, don't let uh, the, the rigors of academia just kind of take over your life 
and make you give less time than you should to that which will keep you grounded and balanced and just frankly will count for a whole lot longer <laughs> than yeah. a degree in a career. So that's the first thing. And I guess the second is um, because so many people now pursue higher education, not right out of college, but after they've tasted life, they've had a job, they've gotten married, they might even have children, work out that balance carefully um, uh, uh, and, and treat academia like a full-time job, not like a life-consuming passion. <laughs> give, give it the 40 hours and give time to family, give time to yourself, give time to um, discipleship in the church. Wow. That is, uh, amen to that. I mean, that, that's, uh, I've, I've, I think the local church advice and then just keeping that balance is, uh, is extremely important. Uh, I know, I mean, I don't have a PhD, but just through, uh, my education being grounded in the local church and then practicing a lot of the stuff, uh, that I was learning in the local church, uh, discipling people, pouring into people, leading Bible studies was mm -hmm. so beneficial uh, for me, even learning the material, um, but uh, I think quite often uh, folks kind of get stuck into their academic circles where the church really loses out on, on the sort of content that those people can give to the local church. So amen to that. So let's, let's shift gears a little bit. Uh, we're talking about the Apocrypha. We're talking about the value of the Apocrypha. Some people might be sitting there and saying, what is the Apocrypha? Is that not a Catholic thing? Might be the first thing that comes to people's minds. Um, or... Hey, I'm looking in my Bible and I can't find that. <laughs> so what, what are you guys talking about here? Now, there are two different uh, sort of things that get confused quite a bit. And that are the apocryphal writings, the apocrypha, and pseudopigraphas. Can you tell us the difference between these two things as we move forward? Um, the difference is really the value that the church has placed um, in, uh, in these texts. Um, so the Apocrypha, ex the Apocrypha and the Pseudepigrapha and the Dead Sea Scrolls, these are all Jewish texts, hmm. pretty much all of them written, uh, in order to stimulate covenant faithfulness, uh, among Jewish, uh, hearers and readers, say between 250 BC and 200 AD. But the difference in the collection is Christians really started to care about some of these books a whole lot more, a whole lot earlier than others, such that they started reading them as authoritative texts. Those books end up in a collection that we will talk about as Apocrypha, because, and we only talk about them as apocrypha because some Christians have embraced them as worthy of scriptural status. Other Christians have said, no, they don't really have scriptural status. But we're only talking about these books because Christians over the millennia have found so much value in them. And then there's the pseudepigrapha, <laughs> which are yeah. just a, a whole kind of a different class in terms of how great their impact was, how widespread their readership and, and how, how important they were seen. Some of them 
were very important. First Enoch is found in the Pseudepigrapha, but it was mm -hmm. a very important book too. Uh, the, the Jews at Qumran read it as scripture. Uh, and to this day, our Ethiopic Orthodox uh, brothers and sisters read it as part of their Old Testament canon. Their Old Testament canon is really fat. Yeah. It's got yes, it's our canon, the Apocrypha, First Enoch, and Jubilees. Yeah. But then a lot of the pseudepigrapha just never really made an impact in any reading community. And like one manuscript of this book or that book survives and academics have preserved it. <laughs> and yeah. yeah. So uh, when we're talking about the Apocrypha, how many books are we exactly talking about? You know, you'd think that would be an easy question. Yeah. <laughs> right. And, and of course, I, I, I can already see some of the comments from live viewers. And the next one is, one's going to be only an academic could fail to give a number in answer to such a question as how many books. Um, so in the most classical sense, we're not talking about that many. And by most classical sense, I mean, what are the books that um, the Roman Catholic Church has embraced as canonical that Protestant Christians have um, rejected as canonical, not, not described that status to. There we're only talking about Tobit, Judith, Ben Sira, Wisdom of Solomon, First and Second Maccabees. And okay, so and and then uh, we, we leave individual books and we go to different versions of Daniel and Esther. We go to fatter versions of Daniel and Esther. Mm. And then uh, finally remember Baruch. <laughs> That's yeah. the last one. Uh, but then, and this is why the question isn't so easy. I'm holding up my go-to edition of the Apocrypha here. It's uh, the NRSV with some good annotations. And it includes a few more books because um, uh, we, we actually are also interested then in what Greek Orthodox and other Eastern Orthodox yeah. Christians read as part of their canon that Roman Catholics don't and Protestant, Protestants don't. And so now the Apocrypha has a couple more books typically printed in it. First and second Esdras, third Maccabees, Prayer of Manasseh, Psalm 151, and fourth Maccabees, even though it's technically not really canonical anywhere, it does tend to be printed as an appendix in Greek Bibles. Mm. So there it is. And I, actually, I, I don't know what that tally is. I think it might be 18. Uh, depending on who you separate them, it might have been 16. Right. I'm not sure. But yeah. So there it is. Can't do okay. math. Yeah. And, and then <laughs> neither can I. Um, okay, so it's in the teens, let's just say, right? Um, uh, because there's disagreements uh, in in the midst of that, and so let's let's move into, I guess, some of these disagreements. You mentioned kind of the Protestants rejecting the canon that the Catholics accepted, but it's not just Protestants rejecting the canon that Catholics accept; it's the the Catholics rejecting the canon that the Orthodox. Uh, or parts parts of this when it comes to the apocrypha specifically, and then even you got the Ethiopians saying, "No, no, no, you guys need you y'all need more than that." Y'all are so close-minded. You need you need First Enoch and Jubilees and what have you. That's right. So uh, why I mean the sixty-six books that we have in the Protestant canon is is universally accepted by everybody. Everybody's good with that. And then there's a whole disagreement over, over these apocryphas um, or apocryphal books. Why is that the case? 
Like historically, what what took place? Um, really, this debate goes way back to the second century, um, and and the the way that the discussion is usually framed in the second and third centuries is: shouldn't we accept as Old Testament scripture what Judaism accepts as Old Testament scripture? Shouldn't we simply um, receive from the synagogue hmm. the Old Testament. And the response generally is, why would we do that? <laughs> we, we, we have come to a faith that is very different. We, we receive many other texts as practically and theologically far more important than the Old Testament. We call it the New Testament. Uh, why would we limit ourselves only to those. And, and so, you know, even in the second century, you have figures like Melito of Sardis uh, arguing, we should follow the, 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 the Hebrew canon, the Hebrew canon for our Old Testament. And you have other figures like Origen um, and, and after him, Augustine saying, no, we should follow, we should accept as now, I'm going to rephrase that. We should elevate to the level of canonical authority those books that have been feeding Christian churches most widely um, uh, uh, throughout the past few centuries. And that's going to include Wisdom of Solomon, Wisdom of Ben Sira, Baruch, books that, for the record, um, uh, deeply impacted some early Christian uh, discussions about central doctrines like who is Jesus in relationship to God the Father? What is the relationship between the persons of the Trinity and what have you? I mean, some core doctrines, you have Christians looking to texts about the figure of wisdom and wisdom of Solomon to talk about uh, what the Son was up to before the Word became flesh. Yeah. Or, you know, what is the what is the exact relationship of the Son to the Father within the deity. So people like Origen and, and Augustine would say, why would we throw away or, or relegate to a second place books that have been so deeply informative? And, and then just to keep rambling, you have ways in which these texts have fed early Christian uh, piety and perseverance in other ways. For example, Second Maccabees, uh, uh, the story of the, the Jewish martyrs of about 167, 166 BC, become part of the, 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 the stock of material that encourages Christians to face the same rigors for precisely the same reasons, mm. to show faithfulness to God. So again, the question is, you know, when, when these texts have, have assisted us uh, to keep our witness alive in the face of, of torture to the point of death, how can these not be foundational documents that just tell us who we are and shape who we're supposed to be? So those, I think, are really kind of the, the parameters of the debate. And those never went away. A lot of Protestants don't know this, but there is a long line of Catholic uh, fathers who said, you know, those are great books, but <laughs> maybe, maybe of secondary authority. Um, so when, when Luther um, uh, published his German Bible and essentially followed Jerome, a fourth uh, 
that might be wrong, a fifth, early fifth century uh, a Roman Catholic father. Uh, and he published an Old Testament, published an Apocrypha in the middle, published a New Testament and, and, and set up the conversation. He wasn't just doing something completely new and out of the blue. He was following one Catholic way yeah. of handling the Apocrypha. And I'm just going to throw one more thing out there before I shut up and let you take your show oh, back. This is, this, this, no, this is great. I love it. <laughs> and that's, you know, Martin Luther did not translate the Apocrypha and have it printed in his German Bible because he thought it was useless, heretical, dangerous. He went through all that work because translating the Apocrypha takes time. And all that had his printers go through all that expense because he believed these books were, and I quote, well, in, in translation, good and useful to read. And just frankly, if that were the current Protestant position on the Apocrypha, <laughs> my work will have been done. Yeah. <laughs> I just want to bring back Luther's solution. Hmm. So this, this so is very Protestant, you would say. Um, when is it where Protestants move away from these early reformers, we could say, um, in viewing the Apocrypha as, let's just say, good and useful with, yeah. without getting into inspiration and all that stuff, just good and useful? Um, it, it, that actually starts early. So Luther or the Anglican, the English Reformation, retain uh, a high a high value uh, uh, for the Apocrypha. Um, reformed, like Calvin, Zwingli, uh, rather quickly go to an even greater reserve. Mm. And I think that's because, um, you know, the, they are so sola scriptura, which they're not really, but they are kind of, that their thought is, well, if it's not scripture, why bother? Why should we, when, 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 the, when the gold and the silver are here, what use is bronze and iron? Got it. It's not mud, but why should we waste our time with bronze and iron when we've got the gold and, and the silver? So those wings of the, of the Protestant Reformation cool off on the Apocrypha a lot sooner than, than some of the others. Did I answer your question? Yes. Yeah. 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 Okay. So it so it is pretty early on. Um, in regards, well, let me to, follow it up with ahead. this. Uh, another important um, uh, development began happening really in the 19th century, when um, foreign missionary societies who collected contributions to print the scriptures for people around the world and to translate them and to distribute them, you know, that, that wonderful movement that focused on getting the word in people's hands, they, 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 they were very strongly, since they were Protestant movements, you know, we're not paying this money for non-scripture, <laughs> for right. stuff that's useful and good to read. We're collecting this money and, and, and putting this, this all together for the stuff that is essential. And, and that was another kind of, uh, moment in which, uh, plus the, the, the desire to have personal Bibles at home, you know, a Bible without an Apocrypha costs 80% of the, of the cost of a Bible with the Apocrypha. All, all these sorts of decisions also helped kind of alienate Protestantism 
from these texts. And as you know, what becomes unfamiliar, coupled with that's what the Catholics do, human prejudice and, and, uh, and suspicion very quickly move in. All right. Yeah. I'm done. <laughs> yes, they do. Um, it, <laughs> I think there's a good question that's being asked in regards to like what what standards were used like you you mentioned uh augustine and origin and them saying like th this stuff has fed us this th this has been a part of our uh reading practices and um I i'm not sure whether it would and you can correct me on this whether it was also a part of the preaching practices like did they actually do we have sermons from these books from the early church do we not like, so what are the standards that were used where they said yes or no? Um, slightly different questions. Uh, and, and the easier one, yes, we do have sermons from the early church. Um, you know, we, we don't have scads of sermon texts from the yes. second and third centuries. But Augustine, John Chrysostom, Gregory Nazianzen, um, and Ambrose all well, I won't say, I won't include Ambrose. The others preached sermons yeah. on these texts. Ambrose wrote books using and paraphrasing these texts. They're not quite sermons. Um, uh, so we can say in the fourth century, they were part and parcel of, of, of the repertoire of books that regularly fed uh, Christians in church, in churches, and, and shaped their their ethics, their, um, their, their spirituality and what have you. Um, if we go to say the second and third centuries, I, I suppose first there's consonance with other texts. Uh, these are not texts that spawned um, any of the heresies that the early church had to deal with. Uh, and in some cases, these were go-to texts for combating some of those heresies especially as i mentioned before the christological questions and so and, like Ar and, like arianism right exactly um, can, can we comment on that a little bit in regards to like what arius is saying and some of the early church responses to using apocryphal texts and and i'm glad you brought that up because arius used many texts from what every christian believes to be scripture so it's not like it's not like canon guarantees success, theologically speaking. In fact, <laughs> the whole history of the church suggests quite the opposite. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, but then in, in, in trying to promote the equality of persons in the Trinity uh, and, um, and uh, talking about the way in which son and father share uh, a common essence mm. and what have you, um, Wisdom of Solomon was a go-to text, along with Hebrews 1 and Colossians 1 and John 1, all of which together, well, uh, let me start that a different way, um, which, which dovetailed so well, it, it became clear that our New Testament authors themselves were already using what we also find in Wisdom of Solomon as a kind of theological resource to talk about the Son. Uh, and I think those sorts of consonances uh, between what we call the Apocrypha, 
But let's just be honest, what most of the world's Christians call the Old Testament, <laughs> yeah. uh, that consonance was very important and also very much on ethical, uh, on ethical grounds. Um, uh, the reader of the Apocrypha notices very quickly that hmm, a lot of this sounds like what Jesus taught or what James taught or what Paul taught. And, and so on the level of ethics, you have the same sort of relationship between apocryphal books and New Testament ethics as you have between Hebrew canon books and hmm. the New Testament. So those sorts of things, I think, just simply positioned second and third century Christians to embrace this literature as part of the canonical heritage of Judaism for them. So... Okay, that that's perfect in in leading us to our next uh, next question. Now you've written on let's just say the New Testament use of the apocrypha. You specifically, I think you wrote a book uh, where uh, the title includes Jesus, James, and Jude, uh, and yes. their and their use of of the apocrypha. Uh, by the way, all the links uh, or the link to all of your books on Amazon is in the description box. People. Um, uh, can feel free to go there and then, and then access your books and purchase them. Uh, you've written commentaries on Hebrews, commentaries on Galatians. Um, am I missing any uh, other commentaries? Ephesians. Ephesians. And this is the fun one, 4th Maccabees. Okay. <laughs> I am one of four living human beings who has written a commentary on 4th Maccabees. <laughs> hey, that's... <laughs> The, the, the good thing in, in, in a situation like that, the good thing is that you're op you don't have too many options to get to get kind of bogged down to say uh, too right. many options. I don't know what to do. So there you go. So, OK, um, oh, this value, I mean, originally we're going to uh, call this uh, kind of the, the value of the apocrypha. In our New Testament, in order specific places we can access uh, in the New Testament to say, yeah, this is from the Apocrypha. Um, so I would say New Testament authors, and, and this I think is also important for the, for the Protestant decision about canon. New Testament authors resonate closely with the Apocryphal books at many points, but at no point do they explicitly recite from one of them as scripture? Interesting. So, so I, and and I mean, there, there are other people who, who will kind of poo-paw that idea. And I said, no, I think it's important that, you know, as it is written, or as the Spirit says, or, or any such formula that is typically used in the New Testament to say, look, I'm quoting an authoritative text that you and I both know is authoritative. So you better, you know, if, if I'm Paul, so you better stop being stupid and listen to me. <laughs> Paul the Apostle. Yeah. Um, uh, they don't do that with these, which suggests that they themselves might not have regarded them as having the same level of authority as Isaiah or what have you, um, or that they wouldn't expect their hearers to regard them as having that same level of authority. So all that to say, um, I find some some marvelous resonances, uh, but not quotation. But here's one that I love to trot out whenever I can. 
you could read the whole Old Testament and never come across the notion that um, if you want to enjoy God's forgiveness of your sins, you must forgive the sins of your neighbor. Hmm. And it is unreasonable to expect God, whose majesty is so much greater than yours, to forgive the affronts to his honor that sins represent, if you're not willing to do the same, having, you know, being so much further down the ladder of honor than God. We find that nowhere in the Old Testament. We come to, well, we don't get any further than Matthew 6. And we find Jesus saying that, uh, at lifting it up uh, so prominently that he puts it in the one prayer he teaches his disciples to use, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Mm -hmm. And he even comments on that. The only thing on the Lord's prayer that he comments on, for if you forgive people their debts, your heavenly father will forgive you. But if you don't, your heavenly father will not forgive you and what have you. So you could go away thinking, oh, well, that's quite the novel teaching Jesus has brought to the hills of Galilee. Until you read Ben Sirah, a Jerusalem-based scribe, sage, teacher, uh, ran a house of instruction in Jerusalem, say between 200 and 180 BC, um, uh, telling his students essentially the same thing. And I wish I had a better memory because I could, I could then quote, you know what? I'm just going to find it. I'm going to find it. Uh, all your viewers, just, you know, talk among yourselves. <laughs> now, here, here we go. Here we go. Uh, ben Sirah 28. Forgive your neighbor the wrong he has done, and then your sins will be pardoned when you pray. Does anyone harbor anger against another and expect healing from the Lord? If one has no mercy toward another like himself, can he then seek pardon for his own sins? And, and I could lay out dozens of such resonances, the upshot of which the takeaway for me uh, is um, the teachings of books like Tobit and Ben Sirah, which were disseminated throughout Judea in the centuries before Jesus, those teachings leavened instruction in the synagogues of, of Israel. They entered into the, the common ethical pool and Jesus picked out of that ethical pool a number of things that were valuable to him that he believed really hit the nail on the head when it came to how to please God. And he incorporated that into his own teaching. He did that with stuff we find in the Old Testament, sure. He also did that with stuff that we now only find in the Apocrypha. And that that's a sort of, of, of again, uh, um, uh, consonance uh, uh, that for me suggests, hey, these are important windows into that larger body of ethical teaching and theological reflection that Jesus, Paul, James, Peter, John, all had at their disposal as they were formulating their message. I hope I didn't go off track from your question there. I, I get a little oh, bit I, preachy so occasionally I, when we, it comes we, to the apocrypha. Completely fine. Um, so that makes me kind of want to go in two different directions. One of them being some people say, hey, Jesus stole this material 
none of none of the stuff Jesus is doing is original. It's it's all stolen stuff, right? Like very skeptical sort of people about uh, Jesus the deity X Y and Z. Uh, look, we found it in this other book that predates him by two hundred years, so he must be taking it. How would we respond to to some accusation of that sort? Um, and then I'll go to the second question I have. Let's yeah. let's address that one. Do we have to respond politely to that kind of accusation, or can we just call it what it is? <laughs> just asking. Uh, do, do it the way you would do it. Okay, let's let let's try polite. I'm from New Jersey, so I don't always <laughs> need with with polite. But uh, my response would be, you know, um, there there is a great deal that Jesus finds valuable in the thinking of the people of God that have been in covenant with God for, what, 1,200 years at least before, I mean, it's hard to date Exodus 1,200, some say 1,500 years before Jesus was born. And Jesus is not out to invent a new religion out of whole cloth. And, 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 and this is where I'd have to curb my inner New Jersey. Why would you be so stupid as to think that would be a good thing for someone to invent a religion out of whole cloth? When is that ever good? When when is that does that ever produce something good? But but rather what we have in Jesus is someone who wants to bring to its ultimate consummation uh, the um, the way uh, to 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 live before God and please God that has been shaped by this people that has known God and wrestled with God and sought to learn faithfulness to God for that whole period. And then again, there will be things that we find have no precedent whatsoever in any of the extant literature we have discovered. And you know, we, we cannot simply say, well, we just haven't discovered the source yet. We, we have to say, well, let's look for the continuity and then also the places of discontinuity, not valuing one above the other. Because Jesus teaching about forgiving, the, the mandate to forgive one another, if you, if you expect to enjoy God's forgiveness, is just as important as when he comes out and says something just radically unprecedented, like, if you really want to be great, you have to be most the servant mm. of those around you. If you really want to be first in God's ranking system of the kingdom, you have to, you have to become the most other-centered in how you invest your energies in yourself. Yeah. So how I don't know. That, That's so, something like that is what I would say. So how is this any different than like Paul quoting the Greek philosophers in Acts? Um, Acts 17, specifically. Yeah. Uh, I think when Paul quotes Aratus and, and whoever else was in there, yep. I think there were two, he's building connections for the sake of, of bringing people. He's building a bridge in order to invite people to cross over into mm -hmm. it. Um, this this I, I regard as, as somewhat different. Uh, this is just uh, a window into that which formed the message into which you and I, for example, are being invited. Uh, this is just part of the formulation of what's on Paul's side of the bridge. <laughs> uh, 
Now, yeah. I see that 911 Glock just yeah. gave a comment, and I'm I'm uh, um, I would be careful telling Christians to read the Apocrypha. They ought to be very well read in the inspired word before trekking into this area. You know, the kind of the bottom line there is we've got to be biblically literate. Yeah. And isn't it sad that, especially here in the West, we have the freedom to have 80 Bibles on our shelves mm -hmm. and we, we, we are still not biblically literate. So 9-11 Glock, which I'm guessing is a pseudonym, <laughs> um, is, is very much on target, but it also just makes me wanna say, how on earth how we, are, are we not very well read? <laughs> in, in the unquestionable canon at this point. And then if we can just turn off the Netflix and, and the Xbox long enough to get well-read, yeah, I would say, sure. You got to read uh, uh, the, the universally agreed upon um, uh, uh, inspired text first, but darn it, if you've been a Christian for a year, that should be behind you already. What are you waiting for? Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't take that long. <laughs> Correct. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's a really good point. I wonder how many books, uh, uh, how many uh, not books, uh, how many articles, random articles, status updates, tweets that we read on a daily basis that pop up on our phones. Um, and we if we compile it all together, that's quite a bit of reading we do through a week or a month. But at the same time, if we say, hey, get your Bible and sit down and read for 30 minutes a day or an hour a day or something like that. We go, oh, that's very hard. Um, this is a side question to our conversation. Maybe this is because we're not taught to read the Bible like a normal book, a normal sort of reading. We overemphasize devotional reading so much where we forget to read it as just for reading purposes, for informational I think purposes. That's, that's an excellent point. If we only go to the Bible to read two verses a day for some scriptural nugget for ourselves, that's not going to do it. Um, some of my best weeks have been spent just, you know what? I'm going to read uh, Deuteronomy through Second Kings over the mm -hmm. next couple of days and just immerse, just immerse ourselves in the, in the story that it tells. And, 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 and of course, then, you know, the prophets or what have you just, um, just get the content into your head and, and read them. Read the Gospels, you know, as wholes, as whole works. And it doesn't take long. I mean, thoughtfully, it takes three hours to read through Matthew or yeah. Luke. They're the long ones. Two hours to read thoughtfully through Mark and John. So, yeah, I, I, I think uh, I have an audio Bible, and I think it takes 128 hours to listen to the whole thing. It's not a lot of time. Correct. That's true. That is true. Oh, sorry. We digress. Yeah. Well, I mean, Thank it's, you, it's important. Block. Yes. We but, ought to be well-read in the inspired word, aren't it? Yes. Yes. Um, I, and I remember, um, I remember in Bible college uh, where um, I saw a professor of mine, um, and he had the Oxford Bible. He, he, and, and I was like, that, that Bible looks really thick. And so I, and then I, I kind of peeked on the cover and stuff. And then underneath it, I think it's small letter it says with Apocrypha. And I was like, hmm. Uh, so I asked him about it. I was like, hey, what's, what's going on there, right? Like, um, and he said, well, I think it's valuable to study the Apocrypha. Um, and then, I mean, 
going through Bible college, you, you do that. You read the pseudopigraphas, you read the apocrypha, and you go, yeah, there is value to this. So which, which we were talking about heresies. I want to kind of backtrack here and, and ask this question. One of the things that came up with Arianism was the, the eternality of the sun and so on and so forth. One of the passages that people would go to was Proverbs 8, this passage about wisdom, and then they would argue from it. Now, you're saying they also used, along with this Proverbs 8, the apocryphal wisdom uh, to argue this very similar point. Do I understand yeah, that right? I'm trying, I'm trying to find the passage. Uh, it's in Wisdom of Solomon 7, talking about the figure of wisdom still. Um, uh, she is a breath of the power of God, a pure emanation of the glory of the Almighty. She is a reflection of eternal light, a spotless mirror of the working of God and an image of his goodness. Mm. So um, uh, language like that, which of course is, is, is very similar to what you'll find in Hebrews 1, 1 to 4, um, uh, allows, and I can't remember right now who specifically was doing this, uh, allows someone to say, well, if it's, if, it's, if it's a reflection of light, when does light exist without a reflection? When does a flame exist without radiance? Um, and to say, you know, there, there could not be a time when the sun was not because um, as long as there was the Father with glory, there would be the emanation of that glory. As long as there was eternal light, there would be the refraction of that light and what have you. Um, so, I, yeah, uh, not to belabor it, but it, it was just another, another text in the arsenal to say, eh, we got we to gotta give... We, we, We've got to give more credits to what the sun was before the word became mm. flesh than Arius was doing. Correct. Okay, uh, this is a, a good question that's come in from uh, our good friend Tom. He says, uh, do these books contain any prophecies? Um, well, yes and no, right? Pro <laughs> what does it mean to say it has a prophecy? So mm -hmm. Tobit, 13 and 14, the end of the book of Tobit, which is a great story anyway. It's a great read. Yeah. And, and in the last two chapters, the figure of Tobit, uh, before he dies, um, uh, gives final instructions, ethical instructions to his son Tobias. And in the way uh, of doing that, he also celebrates what God will do for Jerusalem and for God's people. How Jerusalem will be, because Tobit is writing from, ostensibly from the exile in, in uh, Babylonia. Mm -hmm. uh, so God will rebuild Jerusalem with sapphires and jewels. God will gather the dispersed of his people and bring them home. I think he even goes so far as to say and, and, and distribute the allotments of the land as in the past. And, and so, yes, it has prophecy. But what is it really? It's, it's, it's really just, well, I don't know what it is really. What do I think it is? I think it's just a rehashing of, of what the author of Tobit read in Isaiah 
about God's restoration of Jerusalem and God's pulling together of God's dispersed people. And it becomes an, a, 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 a pious Jew writing a, a, a great story in 250 BC, affirming for his readers, for his audiences, Isaiah is true, man. God is going to do this. God is, is going to follow through. So it has the form of a prophecy, but what is it really? It's, it's just a, um, um, a, a reaffirmation of the reliability of but that, 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 that helps us a little bit maybe right that, that helps us maybe a little bit in our understanding of the disciples and the sort of stuff they were expecting and what they're looking at like in a messiah like that gives us some hints so when the disciples go to jesus and say lord is it at this time you're gonna do this could it be argued right like that they have some of these things in mind not just isaiah uh, maybe not just stuff that Ezekiel talks about or some of the other prophets talk about, but also what Toba talks about, especially if we have evidence that this was a part of their regular intake of literature. Well, I don't know that we have to make that assumption that, you know, that, that the disciples had to be exposed to Tobit mm. to have those expectations that I think you, you rightly say they obviously had. They, they got that already from listening to the Hebrew prophets um, and, and to the way in which those texts were being interpreted, uh, really wherever you look in first century BC, first century AD uh, uh, Judea, which was very much in a, still in a nationalistic direction. One of the things that I think the Apocrypha also does for us is provide us the model of the Maccabees uh, Judas Maccabeus and his family, who are military saviors of Israel. You said that I want to ask a, a, a well, yeah, but, but, but you see, they, they're, a they're a prototype. They're a prototype of what, what the author of Psalms of Solomon, pseudepigrapha, not apocrypha, but what, what he wants to see. They're a prototype of what Jesus' disciples want to see. They're a prototype of what Barabbas's followers had hoped to see. This sort of, you know, um, uh, God acting through uh, native military might to reestablish the independent kingdom of Israel. Sorry, go ahead. So would uh, we, it's would your we, show, Arthur. Would, would, <laughs> you go I ahead. Love, I, I love conversations <laughs> like this. Um, would, would it be fair to call them uh, messiahs? Well, I mean, the title is so loaded, yeah, right? Um, but, um, and it might actually be anachronistic to talk about these figures from 167 in that regard. But those who are called messiahs or would-be messiahs, messianic pretenders in, um, in, in say, Josephus and his history of, of Judea during the Roman mm -hmm. period, um, uh, appear to be stepping forward in the same, as if they belong to the same line as Judas Maccabeus and his mm. brothers, uh, who themselves stepped forward as if they were in the same line as Joshua or David and Jonathan and other military uh, uh, deliverers of Israel from foreign oppression, through whom God would do the miraculous and the unthinkable, disperse huge armies with a small band. It's just so phenomenal to me how, how counter to this kind of thinking Jesus is. I know. <laughs> Absolutely. 
It's like there's there's a crowd that wants him, wants to take him and make him king, like crown him, and then he like slips out. He just <laughs> disappears, and it's 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 sort of like Jesus continuously telling him, "You guys have this expectation. You guys have this anticipation, and you guys want to do things a certain way, but that's not what the kingdom of God is about. It's different than what you've anticipated." Exactly. Just it, it blows my mind. It's 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 phenomenal. Um, Maybe it was you who said this already earlier, but Jesus' upside-down kingdom. Yeah. Yes. And, and this, yeah, exactly. Um, so we've kind of established like there's a value in reading these things. I hope but so. A, a lot of people are afraid, I suppose, uh, and because I hear these right in in conversations. Well, they say, well, to the unlearned, but like to to someone who's like fresh and stuff like that, they might confuse. Uh, those things that we believe are inspired by God and we don't think these things are inspired by God. So we don't want to confuse them. So it's better not to give it to them. Like, how would you respond to that sort of a conversation? Well, I mean, however much I love the Apocrypha, I would have to agree. You, you could spend some good, heavy time in the New Testament first mm -hmm. and reach back into the Old Testament and really ground yourself. I don't think that takes three decades some Christians take more than that to do it. I don't think it should take more than a couple of years. But no, I, I would certainly agree. Live in the Gospels and the Epistles for a good while till you get strongly rooted. Live in the Old Testament. But, you know, don't, don't miss the connective tissue between them. Um, don't, because there's this danger too. People, some people say reading the Apocrypha is dangerous. The danger of not reading the Apocrypha hmm. is thinking that what you read in the New Testament, uh, how shall I say it? Um, no, what you read in the Old Testament represents the world into which Jesus was born and ministered, or represents the, 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 the values and the priorities and the way of thinking about covenant and, and living before God that paul embodied before his uh conversion and calling or or then uh, so the four or five hundred years four hundred years in between uh, uh those bodies of literature show us how the, the the jewish matrix of the early church continued to develop uh and and well even with some of the teachings i mentioned earlier how forgiveness how almsgiving uh how, how some of the things that we take for granted are are central to the red letters of our new testament we're we're um we're already taking shape within the seed bed within which the seed of abraham would be born um mm. uh, and, and and it's routinely problematic because people reading the new testament without any of the stuff in the middle uh, think Jesus is far more removed from um, from the Judaism of his time than he was, because all they know is the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament. So yeah. there's that danger so, too. Uh, yeah. Um, <clears throat> just to put it in light, because man, 400 years is a lot is a lot of time, right? In in between in between that. So superpowers. Um, what we see is, so let's just say Malachi, we're looking at it, superpowers, we got Persia, 
right? That that's the superpower. In that four hundred year time, we go. Persia no longer becomes the uh, no longer is the superpower. Greece becomes the superpower. After Greece, Rome becomes the superpower, and then Jesus is within like. In regards to the political climate, it's very different than Malachi. It uh, is. And culturally, it's different. Linguistically, it's different. Um, the, even the fact that by the time Jesus comes around, the, uh, the Old Testament has been translated into Greek. That's right. It's not Aramaic. It's not Persian, let's just say. right. It's, it's, Greece is the, the Greco-Roman uh, kind of uh, culture is, is the dominant uh, culture there. So f- just so for people, th- so you're saying this gaps it, this helps us understand, because who are the Maccabees fighting against? They're not fighting Actually, against the Persians. Point. Even just to say the Greeks is a gross oversimplification, because yeah. you have the Greeks for about 10 years, and then you have a whole bunch of Greek kingdoms yes, warring with each other. So what we, by <laughs> Greeks, so we're talking like Alexander the Great, and, and then Alexander the Great is gone, and then we get... All these other still, Greek kingdoms. We still have, you still have Greek kings, but now we've got the Ptolemies in Egypt and the Seleucids in Syria and Babylon, and 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 they're just uh, uh, playing tug of war with Judea between them as a, a, a sweet buffer zone mm-hmm. and what have you that they want to possess. And yeah, and and the devastating um, consequences of elite Jews in Judea saying, hey, wouldn't it be great if we could get Jerusalem on the map of all those other great uh, cities of the Hellenistic kingdoms around us? So let's adopt a Greek constitution. What could go wrong? How bad could that be? (laughs) And then, you know, with the best meaning, you know, with really well-meaning and progressive uh, 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 agendas, they end up finding themselves in a place where the practice of the covenant is outlawed on pain of death. How did we get here? Yeah. We talk about the abomination of desolation that has a historical context in 166 or 167 BC when the temple of Jerusalem is made over into a multi-faith worship center for all the citizens of Jerusalem, Gentile and Judean. And so, you know, so much happens in this period that radically shapes Jewish consciousness. And it's into that world that the early church is born. Not, as you say very rightly, not into the world of Esther (laughs) or or what have you with the Persian kings. So, um, uh, hey, there's a question from Tom. Can I take this one? Sure, yeah. Hi, Tom. We've never met. I'm David. So um, there are historical errors in a number of these books. No question. I can say this and you'll end up not liking me. If we really disqualified all books because they got some historical error right, we'd find a lot of our beloved books in trouble too. However, however, Judith doesn't really pretend to be history. Judith is historical fiction. And I think anyone reading Judith, and you're right, Judith 1.5 and and just the first like 10 verses of Judith would know, hey, this guy isn't trying to write history. This guy is writing a kind of 
morality play. Mm. He's writing some sort of, of uh, historical fiction with a heavy-handed point. And that heavy-handed point is Deuteronomy works, the covenant works. And if you're faithful, God will deliver. And if you're unfaithful, God will not. And the nations uh, who fail to honor that God will always get their comeuppance. Holofernes, who says, who is God but Nebuchadnezzar, will end up a dishonored corpse in the end. Mm. So I don't know that there was a disconnect. I think as I, as I read the opening of, of Judith, which gets multiple historical things wrong and multiple geographical things wrong all at once, doesn't show an incompetent author. It shows an author saying, please understand what this genre is. I'm writing historical fiction to make a point and I'm going to make it as evident as if I were saying, when Washington won the Battle of the Bulge uh, shortly before the, uh, you know, whatever, just things like that, yeah. just to say, look, this is, this is a morality play. He didn't even mention the Romans. Who said that? Uh, Who's Deco? Deco said uh, he didn't even mention the Romans. Well, I mean, how prominent are the Romans, uh, I would say, in... I gotta be careful here. So the thing is that, like, why is Latin not not the language of uh, the Roman Empire? At, at it's their so darn Roman hard. Empire? No. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, the, if if you want me to mention the Romans, they're already becoming an an, an empire, a Mediterranean power by 200 BC, yeah. and and they are interfering with what the Seleucids and Ptolemies. I know it was Patton, not Washington. That was my whole point. I was trying to make a point. Okay. A historically inaccurate statement. Oh my gosh. Uh, anyway, uh, and they were, they were interfering with the, uh, the empires in the Eastern Mediterranean quite a bit um, uh, in, in order to um, uh, kind of manipulate things their own way because they were playing the long game to becoming the empire throughout all those lands the true successors to to alexander why greek and not latin probably because greek had already become so firmly established in um well in all the lands from greece around the mediterranean to egypt and what is now libya yeah. what used to be cyrenaica and then all the way um, east into um, Persia and Babylon. Yeah. Not, not that it became the language of, 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 of the farmers, but the language of the administrators. And so when, 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 when the Romans were building their empire and moving into these territories, they did what Americans didn't do while building our, um, uh, while, while building our empire they learned the languages <laughs> the language the main language of the people that they were very gently conquering mm. whereas we're like oh if you're going to be part of america you have to learn english but the the romans were like well um uh, it's a fair trade to administer all of your lands for our benefit we'll speak greek because <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> we're that way <laughs> um you mentioned the consciousness kind of like this, this is the consciousness of the new testament or or like what's impacted on it um i'm curious about practices there's a number of practices that i think christians get confused about like where did this come from 
Um, one of them being synagogues. Like it's nowhere in the Old Testament uh, that I know of uh, that you see the synagogue system, and then you you open up your New Testament, start reading, and people are in synagogue. Jesus is visiting a synagogue, and you go, where did this come from? Um, do we have any help from the apocrypha uh, that sort of establishes this, or even comments on it as to what's going on in the synagogue? And the second one is <laughs> baptism. Which seems like nobody's standing there saying, what, what, what is John doing? What are... They're like, hey, this is, it's a repentance thing. It's a cleansing sort of thing. Sure. And then Jesus obviously does it. We still do this. Um, is, is that kind of hinted at uh, within the Apocrypha? So I'd have to confess that those are two things that the Apocrypha does not help us with. Okay. Um, archaeology helps us a lot with a synagogue. Uh, but archaeologists the kind of consensus among archaeologists is we've got good evidence for third century BC synagogues in the diaspora. We have really strong evidence for first century AD synagogues in Galilee and Judea. We have a fair amount of, of evidence for first century BC synagogues in Galilee and Judea. We really don't have evidence before that. So all that to say, uh, synagogues seem to have been a diaspora Jewish practice that made its way back to the homeland and was transplanted there yeah. later um, and, and, and took root maybe just two generations, three generations before Jesus was born. Yeah, but I, I would like um, kind of, this is lots of conjecture, but if we got this period of time, in 166-167, where um, the temple in Jerusalem, the holiest site it, that is supposed to be the central point of all religious practice, becomes this heretical place, <laughs> becomes this place where it's like, hey, all faiths are accepted. You can do whatever you want here, um, where it might lead some folks to say, well, we can't go there to honor and worship God because that they've defiled the temple. Um, and and maybe that gives rise to, hey, we have this practice that came to us from the diaspora. It, it was working in the diaspora in regards to the synagogues. I, I don't see that really being beyond the, the scope of rationality for folks to say, we can't have this very central thing, so we're going to decentralize our worship to God so these individuals don't get to kind of boss us around that way. Uh, well, <laughs> uh, that, that's, that's not a bad conjecture. Uh, I... I... I would be slow to buy into it because that defilement really only lasts three years. Okay. Right. The first major triumph of the Maccabean revolt is taking back the temple and Correct. throwing out the, the pagan paraphernalia and performing ritual purifications and reestablishing the daily um, offering and what have you. So, I, I don't, while it was traumatic, the defilement of the temple, I'm not sure that um, uh, that, that three-year period permanently turned large numbers of, of Jews away from it. Now, on another day, we could talk about criticism of the temple within Judaism. We could talk about that strange cult living at Qumran uh, <laughs> on the shore of the Dead Sea. 
um, uh, and talk about why they did not think that the temple was even the cleansed temple yeah. two three generations later was uh, was clean in God's sight. But let's face it, they're yeah. a wacko group. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, for folks that don't know the group you're referring to, are the scenes. That's right, yeah. uh, and especially the 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 whole hog that's really bad that's a non-kosher analogy but the, the whole hog essenes who yeah. like you know what we want to be so holy and so pure we're not even gonna have wives and what have you so, so they reject they reject the priesthood they reject the temple uh, not the, uh, and they, the high priest and they and stuff will like that, yeah. be they will be the priesthood of the restored temple in god's time yeah yeah so but the, lots of um uh, lots of uh, apocalyptic sort of stuff is being anticipated. Now, we had a choice. You gave me a choice whether I wanted to talk about the book of Revelation um, or this subject. Uh, and then I chose this one. And then I told my friends, I said, hey, uh, so some folks who've read your literature. And then they were like, but Revelation would have been so good. Uh, so uh, maybe I think we'll have you back on and we'll talk about revelation and apocalyptic anticipations and stuff like that. That will, I, I, would, that I would love to do that on a future, on a future day. Yeah. You also mentioned John the Baptist. The baptism. So, yeah. I mean, this ritual washing say, sort of stuff. Just to say there were many ways in which ritual washing was just a regular important part of, of Jewish practice. Um, archaeology also has, has, has turned up, mikvaot all over judea um where anyone of probably a priestly family would would be able to um to guarantee they had access to ritual purification from typical defilement so mm -hmm. uh, and, and of course you know going up to the temple there are large public mikvaot I mean, sure, you know, um, you know, the Pool of Siloam is believed to be one of these, Interesting. you know, uh, large public purificatory baths. So uh, th there's a lot of precedent for for doing that. And and the folks at Qumran, uh, you know, they, they immersed themselves before every communal meal. Uh, to, to maintain the purity of the community in the presence of a holy God. So I, I think when John the Baptist is doing what he's doing, you know, he, he doesn't need a lot of, you know, Second Temple texts to explain uh, what he's doing. He's saying, uh, God is coming. We're going to encounter him again, like at Sinai. So what do we need to do? We need to purify ourselves from all the defiles and John was particularly intent on, you know, those, those sort of those moral defilements and what have you. So the, the, the baptism of John was, you know, come and, and, and be cleansed of those past sins. And by the way, if you don't intend to live a new life henceforth, don't bother coming at all. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So. Would this have been some kind of a replacement? These ritual washings would have been a replacement of uh, uh, putting someone outside the, uh, the kind of encampment. So, you know, when they're defiled, uh, that, the stuff we see in the Torah? Well, yeah, I think that, um, except for the most extreme cases, yeah. like the skin diseases we typically call leprosy. Yeah. Um, the, 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 yeah, well, there were, there were always going to be certain defilements that put you outside of the congregation. 
and no ritual washing was going to take care of that. But I mean, uh, the, the, the ritual washings are, are we talking about John the Baptist or the typical ones? I've lost track. The typical ones. Oh yeah. The typical ones. They're just for the, for the, the defilements of, of, of flesh. Yeah. You know, the, the, the nocturnal emissions and the contacting hides or whatever. I, I'm, I'm just going off the top of my mm-hmm. head um, to, to maintain the ritual purity. John's was something more definitive. Correct. Cleanse yourself for an encounter with God. Um, yeah, I, I see a question that I want to be sure to answer. Sure, and we're getting close to the to Please. the to the end of our time. Arnold, Arnold, who's only been listening on and off. So my first word would be. (laughs) (laughs) Go back back and listen to it. No, no, no. Um, Just a little raspberries to Arnold. But are the Apocrypha authoritative? I've I've never read them thinking of them as authoritative. I've I've always read them and I've read them a lot. Just thinking of them as informative and in some cases formative um informative i don't have to go on about we've been talking about that the whole time but i think there's also a lot of 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 ethical and spiritual i'm just kidding arnold (laughs) Um, a, a lot of ethical and spiritual wisdom in these texts that can really help us and i'm just gonna say at, at least at the same level of all the other devotional literature that we read. Because there isn't, I dare say, one person who's going to view this video cast who doesn't also read just whatever popular Christian author is out there or Christian classics, which, mm-hmm. by the way, are always better than whatever popular Christian <laughs> author is out there. Uh, because we read, uh, uh, we, we, we don't read... We read our Christian sisters and brothers, we read uh, for edification, not because we think that they're authoritative, but they might help us. And I've personally found a lot of help in some of the apocryphal books. I, I find Wisdom of Solomon 1 and 2 and the analysis of, of the worm at the core of, of human evil uh, as the fact that we know we're going to die and the suspicion which becomes the conviction that that's all there is, this life. And so living for this life only warps our ambitions, our investments of ourselves, eventually warps how we treat other people and just is the source of of the wickedness that destroys our lives and the lives around us. I think that's a brilliant analysis. Then of course it goes on to say, how how you get out of that by realizing that god has prepared us for immortality so let's start living that way so uh, anyway um authoritative no both informative and 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 positively formative yes what you just said sounds quite a bit like ecclesiastes so um yeah, except I never walked away from Wisdom of Solomon nearly as depressed as I do from Ecclesiastes. <laughs> That's true. That's true. I'm actually re- I'm leading our Patreon supporters. Uh, I, uh, I'm uh, taking them through Ecclesiastes Bible study. So uh, it's, it's fun. Afterwards, we, we, we try to rile something <laughs> up because it, it can get to a point where you're like, oh, what's the point of all this stuff? 
anyways, um, you do have to go. Um, can you make a couple of comments as to how our um, understanding of um, the Apocrypha could possibly help our apologetics? Um, hmm. Yeah, this 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 is is tough. I don't really think in apologetics terms much in what I do, which is just a sign that I live most of my life with fellow Christians, right? I teach at a seminary mm. and I work at a church. Um, uh, but hmm, ask that again in a way that's a little bit more specific. So I can give you something. Sure. So I mean, there's quite a bit of criticisms that uh, we get. Uh, so, f for example, there's one, uh, some popular uh, stuff on YouTube. Just uh, um, are individuals and scholars coming on there and saying uh, this, all this New Testament stuff is regurgitated uh, cultural sort of stuff, uh, and then they will actually quote from apocryphal sources saying, "See, it's there," like the one we mentioned about Jesus. Um, and how we can, our understanding of the apocrypha can actually aid us in saying, well, that, that's just not necessarily true. Yeah, I, I, I guess, yes, you, you, you touched on this earlier, and I guess I'm just surprised that that kind of attack on the faith gains any traction hmm. for the reasons I already said. I mean, one of the things that, that, that speaks to me about the authenticity of our faith is that it is a it is a faith that is born out of a long history of people dealing with this one God. <clears throat> it is not, and I mean no disrespect. I'm just saying that to avoid the death threats that would inevitably come. Mm. It is not one guy saying God revealed all this material to me. Y'all know who I'm not talking yep. about, right? Yep. Uh, it's rather here is the testimony of people who have been living in covenant with this one God, um, uh, 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 the consummation of which we, Gentiles, have been invited into along with them in Christ. So I don't know. I just, yeah. I don't get that. I, I think it's, it's it, it only, to me, and maybe I'm just out of it, but it only testifies to me to the authenticity of Jesus' teaching that, it has such deep roots and and it is so intentionally selective and this is the part that they don't get into because they think oh if there's a parallel there's nothing new or, or there's there, there's there's no new thrust but the other side of that is as i mentioned earlier what's with the love of novelty and, and isn't that kind of you know more you know everyone's just sitting around wanting to talk about a new thing like the athenians at the areopagus so i don't know so, That's so, a good point. so I would say it, it, this is a heritage of faith, uh, a, a people of faith that have journeyed with God for over a millennium. And I, I just reject your criticism uh, that, that, uh, that Jesus' rootedness in this long history of experiencing uh, a faithful God and trying to return that faithfulness is somehow disqualifying of what he has to say. Okay. Well, I want to thank you. Thank you so much for uh, for agreeing to do this and coming on. I know you've you've got other uh, engagements. Uh, I'm, I'm sure we can sit here and talk for the next two hours on some of this stuff, but I'm pretty sure we'll have you back on. Uh, so thanks a lot.
My pleasure. Thank you, Arthur. It's great to meet you and interact with you and and your uh, your guests in the chat. Yes. And we'll talk about Revelation someday. Yeah, I think so. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, I want to thank you guys for watching. I uh, hope you've enjoyed this. Uh, you might want to go back and rewatch it. Um, it's all, I, I know I do when I listen to podcasts that have lots of information in it. I go back and re-listen to it and watch it and say, okay, how can I figure some of this out? And I hope that uh, something has been birthed in your heart uh, in regards to the Apocrypha and the reading of the Apocrypha as was stated uh, that it is both informative and formative and you view it like that and you read it as such so i want to thank you guys god bless you guys we will be back on tomorrow for our live q a at 1 p.m take care and god bless